Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, we need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, that is going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. Well, he certainly moved ahead. And we're going to talk to our next guest about that in just a second. Scott Moe is going to be with us in a moment. The Premier of Saskatchewan, who tweeted just a couple of days ago, the same federal government who alienated our oil and gas industry is now putting global food security at risk by attacking the hard-working agriculture producers across Western Canada with an arbitrary goal to reduce fertilizer usage. We'll talk to the Premier about that. Premier Scott Moe joins us from Saskatchewan. Premier, thank you very much. And when you hear the uh, when you hear that particular that particular uh, quote from Mr. Trudeau, and and I put and I ask you, within context of that tweet that you issued a couple of days ago. How do you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for for having me on again to Roy uh, today, Roy, and, uh, and and hello to all your listeners. Uh, we're sitting. I'm sitting here looking out my window. We had a beautiful rain yesterday on uh, our agricultural land in this area, which is all well fertilized this year and is going to, you know, produce uh, food for 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 us in Canada and North America and our, and around the world. And we're going to continue to do our part in providing food security for the world uh, because this uh, food security fertilizer use is a uh, is in the provincial jurisdiction under the constitution as is uh, oil production and all of our natural resource development which addresses the comment uh, that you had played which i had forgotten uh, he had made uh, such a, a bold-faced blatant comment uh, that's entirely out of the the federal jurisdiction to make any comments on on natural resource uh, natural resource development. And so, you know, again, listen, um, your question later on, on mandate, uh, Roy, uh, you know, does this government have a mandate? Of, of course they don't. They're, they're a minority government propped up by a third party. Uh, this is a caretaker government. And, and from Saskatchewan's perspective, we're not going to uh, allow their what will be temporary decisions uh, to be made, policy decisions, uh, to impact Saskatchewan uh, energy producers and Saskatchewan agricultural producers, as that's where they seem to be turning their focus uh, now. They're a caretaker government, nothing more, and uh, they should be viewed as such. So can you give us a bit of an idea, a bit more of an idea, Premier Mo, about uh, what your plans are as far as oil and gas is concerned? Energy, the world needs energy. We're, you know, we've speaking the last couple of weeks, or actually for some months now, with Jerry Bro, who's the former head of energy security for France, Professor Bro, and they fear blackouts in Europe uh, this coming winter, or he certainly told us that. So, what are you, what are the options that you have? What would you do to challenge Mr. Trudeau on oil and gas? And then let's talk as well about what you would do to challenge him on his fertilizer uh, reduction plan, thirty percent. I think he wants. Well, we're we're just simply not going to uh, be uh, you, you know paying attention in any way to what uh, his environment minister is talking about on the on the fertilizer reduction piece. Uh, listen, in France, uh, as you mentioned, 
Uh, and, and France, if they're looking at black or brownouts or rolling blackouts in France, they, they actually have adopted nuclear power in France. And I'd say they're in likely a little stronger position than some other areas of the European Union that are entirely um, reliant on, on Russian oil, Russian natural gas and Russian coal uh, to keep their lights on and their heat on in their homes. And this, and this is the, this is precisely the path that our federal government here in, in Canada is setting us down is the, the European Union path where we're reliant on, uh, other areas of the world. We're, yes, we're pushing our emissions out of, out of domestic production, but we're simply importing those products from other areas of the world, thereby being, putting our food security and our energy security at risk. And I, I think it's, it's really time for us to have a, a, a much more uh, grown-up conversation around energy security, how we're producing our energy, yes, but ensuring we have energy security, not only in, in, in Saskatchewan or Canada, but across North America. And if, if we don't have that North American food and energy security discussion here, uh, who else do you think is going to have it for us? And we, we produce some of the most sustainable products uh, in the world, available in, in the world. We need to continue to push uh, the sustainability matrix of what we are producing, but not at the risk of purchasing our, our gas, our oil, our food from uh, overseas somewhere. Yeah, I, I may have misspoken. Uh, he, he didn't say necessarily point to France as um, having potentially blackouts. He said other countries or countries in the European Union. could have meant France as well. Germany certainly right. is uh, the canary in the coal mine there. Um, before we take the, the break, Premier, um, the federal government, as you well know, and you, you talk to the, to the prime minister, there must be, must be fun conversations. You, uh, you talk to the prime minister about his objectives and they always come back and say, it's a climate emergency. What do you say to, when, when they say that to you, what do you say? Well, in, in, in the European Union, I would say they're having an energy security emergency. Uh, they're, 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 what, what type of policy looking back over the last 10 or 15 years? Uh, what, what, you know, how could this possibly be viewed as a successful policy to, yes, reduce the emissions in, in countries, uh, throughout the European Union, but then, you know, blindly and quietly buy, uh, you know, 35, 45, 65% of their natural gas in the case of Germany, uh, from, from, from Russia. Uh, some, some of the dirtier product that is produced globally, uh, much cleaner, uh, what's being produced here in Canada, uh, and, and in essence have, you know, provided funding for uh, you know, Vladimir Putin to do what what we see him doing here today, and so th- this is a, this is a flawed policy. It's on full display uh, for all of, of us to uh, observe uh, in the European Union today. Uh, Saskatchewan isn't going to be part of any of this type of policy as we move forward. However, uh, in saying that, um, it, while we provide an, our our energy security and our food security and do our part to do that across the nation, across the continent, and globally. Uh, we we are uh, going to continue to make every effort to uh, achieve uh, you know the targets around you know a, a net zero potentially by 2050, and we think Saskatchewan has the innovation and the industries to really add to that conversation. However, we're not going to put at risk uh, our energy security, our food security for 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 uh, you know these types of what are ideological policy objectives of uh, of a very unserious federal government. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because food food security is ma- obviously. I mean, I'm stating the obvious here. 
it's massively important, and we know from the situation in Ukraine, and we've spoken to the Ukrainian ambassador to this country several times in recent weeks on this program, so we know how significantly important getting Ukrainian grain out of the ports is to, you know, to parts of the world where there's going to be famine if they don't get it, and and we would without Western Canadian uh, grain and without, without the Western Canada farmers, the rest of it is in this country would be in significant trouble, in in a very short order. The Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, we're talking about uh, issues that involve the province of Saskatchewan, Western Canada, the federal government, all of us. And uh, the Premier has said, when it comes to the issue of agriculture and supporting the farmers, when it comes to oil and gas and natural energy uh, in, uh, in the province, the province will go its own way. It has the constitutional right to do that. federal government doesn't, doesn't have the right to meddle with the province. I'm, I'm stating that correctly, am I, Premier? I think that would uh, be uh, absolutely correctly, and in particular when it uh, is going to, uh, you know, I- impact our, the, the security of, of supply that we have here in Canada. When we've seen such a, a blatant, uh, poor example of, of policy implementation in the European Union, yeah. what would happen to farmers in Western Canada, Saskatchewan, and in your neighboring provinces of Manitoba and Alberta if you were to? Um, do what the, uh, the environment minister, who wants us to eat with our fingers now, and and <laughs> and then for expediency's sake, you can wipe your mouth with the back of your hand. It all works out in the end. What would happen if you if your farmers were to follow that lead that Mr. Trudeau wants you to do to cut uh, cut, cut uh, fertilizer emissions? He says emissions. You can't you can't cut out emissions without cutting out fertilizer, can you? It, listen, there, there, it's whether you want to have a net, uh, a com, net conversate carbon conversation, or whether you want to have a, uh, uh, you know, an absolute reduction carbon conversation. And when the when you get into Saskatchewan agriculture, at least uh, the the net carbon conversation, uh, Saskatchewan agriculture producers are among the leaders uh, in the in the world uh, when it comes to the sequestration in our soils and the innovation that they're already employing. In fact, that's even identified in uh, Minister Gabot's. Uh, uh, document here, of which we will respond to, and our response will be uh, thanks but no thanks from Saskatchewan's perspective. But the caveats in here are essentially that uh, that considerable effort on the prairies has already moved uh, Saskatchewan farms uh, to a great adoption of the 4R approach, for example. About half a Canadian farmland that is already under the 4R, uh, which is a sustainability management system, is, is in Saskatchewan, about half the, the Canadian farmland. We're already using conservation and no tillage. We're already incorporating uh, legumes uh, and pulse crops into our, our, uh, our rotation. And then it goes on to say the, the caveat of, of, of not being able to achieve what Minister Gabot wants to achieve is all of his information is based on experiments. In some cases, uh, the data isn't, uh, isn't accurate. In other cases, there has been a lowering of, of emissions. And in other cases, there's actually been an increase of emissions. So the, the whole document is uh, null and void and is really a, an ideological policy that this, uh, this very unserious government, and uh, in particularly unserious environment minister, uh, want to push through with no science backing behind it. If, uh, and I, I would just urge uh, the entire government, in particular the environment minister, maybe at the urging of the ag minister that was out here two weeks ago, uh, to come up, just listen uh, to Saskatchewan farmers as to what they're doing and how they are already, year by year by year, uh, enhancing not only our production, but enhancing the sustainability, the, the intensity, uh, our carbon intensity of every ton, lowering our carbon intensity of every ton of production that we have year over year over year. 
Do you think they are, they're not even interested in what your position is? They have their view and their position because, as uh, Sylvain um, Charlotte pointed out to us, the food professor, at food professor on Twitter, in the last budget, there wasn't even a section that was dedicated to agriculture. They certainly had some some parts of the budget included agriculture. I'm kind of drifting off the topic here, Premier. I'm sorry. But uh, I just wonder if they're serious about agriculture and what you're doing in Western Canada. No, I, I don't think they, they in any way they're serious about agriculture. They're serious about implementing uh, some ideological uh, policy positions that they think are, are good from their, their perspective when, in fact, they're, they're quite harmful. You know, case in point, uh, we're going to eat with our fingers now when we go out uh, for supper uh, in, in the evenings or wherever we might go. Yeah, and then we're going to wipe our... That, by the way. Yeah, and then wipe your, your, your mouth with the back of your hand. I, I wonder if they consulted with Dr. Tam over the last uh, couple of years with respect to uh, the whether or not we should be eating with our fingers and wiping our, our mouth with our fingers. So this is an unserious government, and particularly an unserious uh, in, environment minister, and we won't be... Uh, implementing uh, policies that come from uh, a government, quite frankly, that is a caretaker government. And I think with the polling discussion you'll have shortly, you're likely hearing footsteps. Yeah. Well, they should be hearing footsteps. Um, what about the carbon tax and the uh, the taxes that are p- placed on energy with for the farmers in particular, whose uh, expenses with inflation and interest rate uh, rates climbing are already, uh, in some cases, I'm sure, through the roof. What about the carbon tax impact on the uh, on, on your farming sector? Well, I, again, I think that's uh, another example of a of a cost on not only farmers but families uh, across this nation that is uh, entirely unnecessary um, and is is uh, you know just flawed policy. It's an ideological policy that never should have been implemented in in the first place. In particular, in the the agriculture world where. Uh, we are already producing some of the most sustainable product that you can find, the agri-food uh, product that we produce in Saskatchewan and across Canada. Uh, we're actually working on some uh, some scientific-backed uh, uh, work uh, to uh, put in front of not only the federal government, but to put in front of our, far- our, our, produ- our customers, pardon me, um, for our producers to put in front of our customers around the world, uh, really uh, looking at the, the carbon intensity of, uh, for example, a ton of wheat or a ton of pulse crops uh, or a ton of canola that's produced in, uh, in Saskatchewan relative uh, to other areas of the world. And I've always said we should be making market-based decisions on buying uh, the highest quality, most competitively priced, but most sustainably produced products uh, in the world as well. And when you put Saskatchewan uh, products, and I would say even Canadian products, uh, alongside uh, products from other areas of the world, whether it be energy, whether it be agri-food, uh, we we fare very well on the sustainability matrix, and we should be buying more of our Canadian produced uh, products. And uh, so that, that's that's some of the work that we're doing alongside uh, the Global Institute for Food Security uh, here in Saskatchewan, as well as uh, other folks uh, from other parts of Canada. And so there is a move afoot uh, to prevent this type of silliness be- from becoming uh, policy uh, from, a, as I say, a government that obviously is hearing footsteps uh, behind them. And as uh, is a government that just you know hasn't been a, a very serious with their policy development for some period of time, and most notably is telling us to go out and eat our our, our food with our hands. Yeah. Well. Yep. Uh, we have about thirty seconds uh, left, Premier. Do we need more interprovincial cooperation? Because when I look at Quebec and Premier Legault, he doesn't want uh, natural gas liquid natural gas plant has been cancelled and doesn't want pipelines going across his province. Do we need to have more interprovincial cooperation? 
Yes, we, we do. And we also need a better understanding uh, interprovincially and, and across the nation of uh, what exactly is required uh, and and what uh, type of product we are moving relative to, uh, for example, in, in the case of a natural gas pipeline uh, th- across Canada through Quebec is a uh, much more sustainable product, for example, than what is coming into on the boats into the ports uh, and the, in the eastern areas of our nation. And so right. we need to have a, a much more serious conversation. I would hope that would be led by the federal government saying more sustainable product in Western Canada is Canadian built, Canadian produced versus uh, bringing in product from other areas of the world. And, and so we need a leader on that front. It isn't going to be this government. I suspect it could be the next. Abacus data uh, released a poll this weekend. We talked about it some yesterday, which shows national approval numbers for Justin Trudeau as prime minister lower than they've ever been, while disapproval numbers are at their highest. 74% of Canadians believe the changing economy will bring more threats to their quality of life than opportunities to improve it. So this is now 2022, and there is that agreement between Mr. Trudeau's Liberals and Mr. Singh's NDP that they will support one another, or at least Mr. Singh will support Mr. Trudeau when it comes to confidence votes, until 2025. So there's time to go, and the Conservatives don't have their leader um, selected yet. So what's all in play here? David Coletto is Chief Executive at Abacus Data. David, thank you for making time for us on a Sunday. Hey, Roy, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, glad to have you with us. Let's begin with the Prime Minister's approval rating with Canadians. Uh, you show that it's never been this low, or dis- disapproval ratings have never been as high as you found. Speak to that, please. So, yeah, this is the first time in since 2015 we've been tracking, you know, at least monthly, that now half or more Canadians disapprove uh, of the job that the federal government's doing, um, you know, approval ratings down to 31% uh, or 34%, mind you. And we see it the same um, kind of track when you ask people, do you have a positive or negative view of the prime minister? His negative number is now the highest it's been. So you can go back in history to the SNC-Lavalin scandal, to his trip to India, to um, the, the trucker convoy. I live in Ottawa that, that many people looked at and said, you know, this is a prime minister that wasn't stepping up to deal with it. In all those cases, which the government was under heavy pressure, this approval rating never reached the height that it is now. So it is showing that, you know, the the cost of living crisis, inflation, and I think a government that probably isn't connecting where people want it to be, to be talking about the issues it cares about, is is continually losing uh, the, you know, public support that it hasn't seen since it was elected in 2015. Yeah. Somebody said to me years ago in high school, biggest mistake you can make is make it again. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that's what they're doing and their, their acceptance level. I look at sometimes, um, David, as acceptance, not just approval, but acceptance seems to be just going by the wayside. But as far as the disapproval ratings are concerned for the federal government, what does it mean to both the government and the opposition parties in 2022? What does it mean to them in real terms? Well, I think, you know, you, you, you referenced Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, at the start of this um, segment. And I think when you are increasingly unpopular, you have less, less leverage. You have less political capital, right, to, to, to use against not your political opponents, but different levels of government. Um, you know, it's harder to get people to do what you want when you're deeply unpopular. So I think that's one um, impact that it has. It's just harder uh, to get people to listen to you, to rally around you when 
you know, their starting point is, I, I, don't, I don't like what you're doing. I disagree with you. From the opposition perspective, I think for the New Democrats, you know, there comes a point, I don't think we're at that point yet, that it becomes very difficult to prop up a deeply unpopular government. So this is not a, you know, I don't think we're at a level yet where the Liberals are as unpopular as, say, Kathleen Wynne was in Ontario prior to, to her losing, right? But, but we need to continue to watch it, that if it hits that level, it may become impossible for Mr. Singh to, to, to follow through on, his, on their deal because people are also going to point fingers at him and say, well, you, you've kept this deeply unpopular government in, in office. So it's something to continue to watch. Um, and so governing is far more difficult when you lose the public's you know, license to govern in an array. Yeah, I have a feeling that there may have been an NDP meeting or two after your poll was released. Just a gut feel. Um, I, I mean, I, I think you're probably right, and I think they, they're always reassessing it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's probably a, a been a tough weekend for some that followed our poll at all. If an election were held today, I, I don't really like this question, and I try not to ask it too often, but if an election were held today, based on the numbers you saw, what would we see if Pierre Polyev were the leader of the Conservative Party and Justin Trudeau were still the Prime Minister running for re-election? What do you suspect might happen if an election were held today? Well, you know, when we asked people that question, we found that, uh, well, hypothetically, the Conservatives would win far more votes than the Liberals are up by five points nationally. When you add Mr. Polyev into the mix, there's still a lot of uncertainty. People don't really know him. Um, you know, half of Canadians don't have an opinion about him either way, so he's not yet understood. So that's a, that's a big variable. But I suspect that the likely outcome is a conservative minority. I don't, you know, I just don't see yet in the current landscape that the Liberals would be able to replicate what they did last year around this time. But that is a huge hypothetical. And as, we, as you know, Roy, politics can change really quickly. But I get a real sense that the public is looking for change. And the big question for Mr. Polyev, if he wins the leadership, will be, is he acceptable enough to people, um, you know, to, to take over for Mr. Trudeau? So if Canadians have to choose between Polyev and uh, Trudeau at this time, based on your polling, who's the, the, who's more acceptable to them? Well, it's looking like right now it's that Mr. Polyev, only because so many people don't really know who he is. And, and one of the things we looked at in our survey, if, if you take about half of the country, they self-identify as, as being in the center of the political spectrum. Pierre Polyev to that group is not, um, you know, the, the, he, he's not appealing, but he's not, you know, someone who, who's pushing them away, who, who, who they reject, uh, whereas many of them are rejecting Justin Trudeau. And so I, I wouldn't count out Mr. Polyev because so many people won't know who he is if he, if he does connect in those early, uh, you know, once he's leader and, and people get to know him more um, we can't assume that, that people are just going to reject him outright because uh, they're looking for a change. Yeah. When you look at the numbers of uh, members of the Conservative Party, you're saying they have 600, and, I think I saw something like 670,000 plus. That's just massive. No political party in this country has been able to go to a, an internal leadership uh, polling or at least a voting with those kind of numbers before. That's huge. That's That to me speaks, well, it speaks to a number of things. Possibility, one of the possibilities is that Canadians are really energized and they want to have a say in what's going to happen with the official opposition party. Keep them there or turn them into a majority government or minority government. I, I think that's true. I also think that it shows just the level of animosity that particularly conservative-oriented Canadians feel towards this government. That the desire for change among conservatives 
or conservative-oriented voters is so strong. I mean, our, our, our poll showed this. Uh, Justin Trudeau, we, we, we test, you know, do you have a very negative view of him? We ask it on a scale. 34% of Canadians have a very negative view of the prime minister, oh, right? It, it, it hasn't hit that high ever before. And, that, and most of those people are conservative. Um, most, like, I think it's like 80% of conservative supporters have a very negative view of the prime minister. That's a big driver in what's causing them to sign up and, and have a say in the, the leadership because they so want to see the prime minister replaced. You know, I've always seen, I've also seen recently, uh, David, some ridiculing of the prime minister and uh, his ministers and their policies. And I tweeted the other day, it's one thing to have people angry at you. It's an entirely different thing when they're laughing at you. It's about relevance, Roy. I, I think this government, at a time when people are feeling anxious about the future, um, worried about paying their, 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 their monthly bills, aren't hearing very much from a government that they feel should be addressing them. And so, you know, you, you talk about ridicule. I think it's a mix of ridicule for some and just simply irrelevance to others. Um, and and that's, a, that's a very dangerous place for a government to be at a time when so much in the world seems wrong and, and out of place. Um, people, people don't feel that the government even cares or, or is listening. Can't have that. Can't wake up in the morning feeling that way. Okay, back to the poll, which is scary for the uh, for the federal liberals. Seventy five percent of Canadians fear the changing economy. That's a big number. Seventy five percent. What's the context there? Well, I think it's this insecurity that people uh, generally feel today. It's, it's one of those key questions I I use to, to be able to understand sort of the outlook that people have and. You know, when the, the, the specific wording is they feel that changes in the economy will lead, will threaten their quality of life uh, as opposed to, you know, provide opportunities to improve it. And, and 75 is a big number. And I think it's ind- indicative of the fact that, you know, for many sectors of the economy, um, people are looking at the, just the rate of change. And change is something that's inevitable. It happens all the time. But I think we're, we're, at, a, we're at, a, at a moment coming out of a pandemic um, immense amount of changes in the economy, insecurity around the world, that people look and say, I'm not sure anymore. This is, we've come to a point where I'm not sure it's going to get better in the future, right? And the next generation is going to be better off than the one that came before it. And that's a, from a political perspective, again, a, a very challenging place to be because it allows political leaders who want to take advantage of it to, to feed into it and 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 I think we see it around the world. It's not this is not just unique to Canada, obviously. Yeah, at this time, boy, it's a it's an issue that I'm sure is dogging each and every country. And the politicians and the governments have a responsibility to stay in touch with people, or they'll run into the kind of numbers that you're finding. Now, what about this one? A third of Canadians believe white people are being discriminated against more than people who are members of visible minorities. What's the interpretation? I keep using the word context, but once again, uh, David, what's the context behind this one? Well, I think it's actually related to what we were talking about earlier. I think it's, it's you know, um, there's, there's a subset, and it's a minority view in the country, but it's still a sizable minority view that, um, and, and it, you're, if you're white, you are far more likely to believe this, by the way, than if you are a member of a visible minority community, that, that, um, that, 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 that the way we talk about issues or the way that policies are set up um, seem to, from some people's perspective, and this is perception. Perception in my world is very powerful. It's not necessarily the truth, but it's what people think. Um, it puts them at a disadvantage. And 
and that feeling of losing control, of losing your place in society, of losing your job or losing your status is a very um, powerful motivator. And so it gets people um, thinking this way. And I think you've seen it. You saw, I think you, the best example of it is in the United States, um, where I think someone like Donald Trump spoke to those white Americans who felt their status was under threat. But I think it's the reason I think it's the reason I put it out in the public was it's important for us in Canada not to be complacent about it and not to assume we are not like the U.S. or we can't go down that path. And and so it's it's a question of why do people think that, and um, how do we how do we work together? I think to to overcome that sense of, of loss that, that a sizable number of people feel, and it's it's part a rejection of the wokeness that I think you sometimes hear, and it's part. Uh, economic and social anxiety that people are feeling. Yeah, I think it's important that you release that information. Uh, you know, opening doors to discussion, to meaningful discussion and conversation and understanding and you know, people talking to each other about something that matters to all of us, I think it's really important that we have that information. So glad you did. I, I, yeah, I agree. Okay, um, I'm going to keep another 30 seconds, then I'll thank you so much. Um, what is there something I haven't asked you about, a finding that, uh, that that really stuck with you that you can share with us? I think, you know, we talked about the Liberals being in, in a challenging position. I think the thing that, that stood out to me, upon, you know, of the Prime Minister's numbers being as worse as they are, this is the first time in our tracking anyway that the Conservative Party has sustained a lead over the Liberals for more than a few weeks. I think that's an indicator, even if we're not going to have an election next week or next month or even next year, that, you know, as the Conservatives decide who their leader is going to be, we're entering, I think, a a different political environment than the one that we've faced uh, or seen over the last seven years um, of of Liberal government. And so that will be something um, I watch really carefully, and I think it's a big takeaway from our research release this weekend. RCMP Chief Superintendent Chris Leather testifying for a second day on Thursday before the Mass Casualty Commission said in his view there was political interference at play when RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky insisted police re- release detailed information on the firearms used by Gabriel Workman in that April 18, 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia during which 22 people were murdered. So directly challenging Bill Blair. Uh, Chief Superintendent Leather also testified federal lawyers advised him not to speak about a call he received from Commissioner Lucky to that effect. The federal lawyer in question testified she did not ask Chief Superintendent Leather to, quote, not speak about it and uh, not speak the truth, end quote. She said she thought Leather was in possession of a document which may contain privileged information. Okay, then. Okay, then. Tim Mills, former Nova Scotia RCMP ERT tactical team leader, uh, he was on duty the night of April 18th, uh, 2020, and uh, Mr. Mills has been on this program with us before. Much appreciate him coming back on. After 29 years, he left the RCMP over what ensued after that night and uh, how unsupported his team was by uh, senior brass at the RCMP. Tim, thank you for coming back on. How do you see and assess what's happening now as far as testimony by senior RCMP officers at the Mass Casualty Commission is concerned, is going on. Still going, it still centers on whether the commissioner expected the public to be informed of the types of weapons used by Wartman to further the objectives of the federal liberal government to ban certain firearms in this country. How do you see what's going on? Well, thanks for having me back, Roy. Uh, 
Yeah, as I said last time, I don't know, six weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, you know, I believe the evidence uh, is going to show that Darren Campbell is telling the truth. And, you know, I'm a little bit surprised uh, Chris Letter did, you know, admit to this and, and stick to the truth. Uh, you know, with dealing with uh, Chris Letter directly after Portapic, um, he appeared to be a company man. Um he stood the Yurt team up two weeks after Portapic. We we tried to have a meeting with him because we had heard heard nothing from any upper management, and he stood us up. And uh, so then another six week, weeks went by after that, and so it'd be two months. And we had another meeting we scheduled, and uh, he did meet with us, and you know he did apologize, and he and he did try to make amends. Uh, so a little bit of uh, you know um, respect. Uh, was was back there but not much and you know so when he actually uh did speak up and support darren campbell it was a little bit of surprise but you know i i do think he redeemed himself a little bit in my books uh, i'm glad he did it uh, and uh spoke the truth yeah so if we if we can talk about inspector campbell for a moment the justice department of this country withheld pages of notes for months from inspector campbell and opposition parties are saying this was done because the notes' contents would be detrimental to the federal government. It's quite alarming, Tim, if the inquiry into the mass murders of 22 people in Nova Scotia has to subpoena the federal government for information from an RCMP inspector that should have been available to the inquiry on day one. Or am I missing something? No, I mean, that's pretty obvious. And when I gave my testimony or my interview to the Mass Casualty Commission way back in September 2021. You know, they, the Government Canada justice lawyers were there in the room at the time. And, you know, I, I brought up at the time about corruption. I mean, the RCMP had this, what they called an issues management team working out of the H Division headquarters in Nova Scotia. And two husbands were on that team. Uh, you know, one of the CEO, the commanding officer, Lee Bergerman, and one of the chief superintendent in charge of Halifax district, Janice Gray. And I pointed that out and I said, you know, that's not even like, you know, like stupid. That is pure corruption. You don't have husbands on the team uh, on this issues management team when their wives were directly involved and, and there were issues with the wives and, and how they handled it. And I, I said right during my interview that that's corruption right there. So that it doesn't surprise me that they tried to get, Chris Leather to, you know, hide this or, or not volunteer it at least. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and they withheld the notes uh, for, from Darren Campbell. Yeah. Is, is, is this, what's, what's your sense of, what's your view of the inquiry? We're going to be talking with uh, Scott McLeod in just a couple of minutes, who you know well. Um, is this inquiry permanently off course? Is it intentionally off course? Was it ever intended to be on course? Well, I say it right from the start. During my interview, during my testimony, I think this is just to appease, you know, the public, the families. The, you know, nothing ever changes with these, you know. And I don't know if they were inquiries or, or reviews or whatever for Mayor Thorpe and, and Moncton, but I state it. Nothing changes. Nothing, you know, becomes any better. They have these basically to keep, you know, the public somewhat quiet and think something's being done. And then we never see changes uh, after the fact. I mean, very minimal so, you know, whatever is brought to light, uh, I know there's been, you know, 
studies done and business cases submitted on helicopters and, and bodies and resources, and, and none of that ever comes, you know, to fruition. So I just think it's uh, just lip service. Yeah. So I don't know if I should ask you this or not, but don't answer if it's if you don't want to. Um, what do you make of this whole issue about the commissioner's call days after the shooting to a, to a group of RCMP officers, including uh, senior officers like Inspector Darren Campbell. And now, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about that and what she says she said and says she didn't say and what others are saying she said. What do you make of this? I think it's pretty simple to myself. I mean... What we've been through as Canadians for the last two and a half years and uh, what's been going on, and I think it's uh, civil disarmament. They want to take guns away from law-abiding citizens and try to convince uh, you know, the Canadian public that guns are bad when it's criminals that are committing these offenses. And I just, you know, Trudeau's been called a dictator and a tyrant by five or six European Union uh, members of parliament. I truly believe he is. And, you know, they want to get guns out of law-abiding citizens' hands so he can do what he wants to do. Do, do, you, um, do you have any regrets about, you know, 29 years you were a frontline officer, you were the ERT unit was also in, uh, in Moncton for that terrible shooting, and you were on the front lines in, on April 18th, 2020. Um, 29 years an officer, uh, frontline officer in the RCP on the front line of the front line, do you have any, any regrets about leaving when you did, Tim? I, I'm asking you questions I probably shouldn't ask, but, you know, I, no, you were always I there. You were When the shooting started, you were there. Yeah, I respect that question. I don't have any regrets. I, I do, you know, I miss the guys. I miss the work. I, I enjoy that type of work. Uh, you know, sometimes I felt bad, you know, leaving because of the guys I was working with. Uh, but, you know, my only regret is, I guess, not leaving sooner like not leaving before this and not seeing how abused we were and, and taken for granted we were and not realizing that hey i'm just a number here and, and finding a better job well before that so that i guess that would be my only regret but no i don't regret my career or anything i've done with the rcmp and you weren't you told us before that after the shooting after that night April 18th, 2020, you weren't respected. You weren't dealt with uh, respectfully by senior officers, you and your team. Well, no, as I said before, uh, you know, we've been fighting for two and a half years to, to have our voices hear, heard and have this investigated, uh, how we were treated afterwards. And it finally is being investigated. I was contacted, but I, I don't have a lot of faith in that system either. And I mean, it's... You know, it's just to finally have someone say, yeah, you know, what you guys are saying is the truth. And I mean, I know nothing will come of it. I don't expect anything to come of it. But just for someone to say, yeah, you guys are telling the truth and they're the ones that are lying. Scott McLeod's brother, Sean, and his brother's partner, Alana Jenkins, were murdered on the night of April 18th, 2020 by um, Gabriel Wartman. And we just spoke, as you know, if you've been listening with... Tim Mills, the uh, former Nova Scotia RCMP ERT tactical team commander on uh, the night of April 18th, 2020. He was also in Moncton for that mass shooting. Uh, Scott has been with us before. Uh, Scott, thank you, uh, thank you for coming on today. I know you have a big concern about what happened in the inquiry earlier this week 
and it's major, and it concerns Lisa Banfield, Wartman's common law spouse. Talk to us about that, please. What did you encounter? Well, over the, the previous number of weeks, uh, we had uh, uh, restorative justice had wanted the families if they wanted to be part of the uh, restorative justice program for Lisa Banfield and her family, and there was several of us that actually said, yes, we'd really appreciate it. And then after back and forth with a number of emails, uh, Friday of last a week ago, Friday, we were all informed by email that uh, her restorative justice has been completed and nobody has any idea what took place or why the families weren't, uh, weren't involved. So you were supposed to be there and you weren't. Correct. Yeah, they, we just nothing. Okay, so so restorative justice in Nova Scotia. Uh, what do they? What does it mean? What what's the what's the what's the fundamentals about that? So over the years, everybody's heard about getting, uh, you know, work work conditions and stuff. You go put in hours with a company or with a group or something to satisfy instead of a instead of a fine or jail time or anything like that. It's it's a way of uh, Community service, I guess what it was called. And this is what it is. Uh, it's listed as restorative justice now. So instead of them dealing with actual fines or jail time or anything, uh, if they agree to it, the, they can do whatever the program is that they set up. And like right now, like with Banfield, we have no idea what she did, but we received an email saying that she'd completed whatever this restorative justice program was that they set up for her, and nobody knows anything about it. And one of the things he was charged with was providing ammunition to Wardman, yes? That is correct. And, I mean, it might set, it might be listed as far as the courts and the law goes as a, a minor offense charge, but what she did was actually enable Wartman to have the materials to go out on this rampage he was on. Yeah. It's not the first time you as family members of the victims have challenged what's gone on at the inquiry, and not the first time that you've been unhappy, dissatisfied with the way you've been treated. Um, what's the status now? How do you feel about this uh, this inquiry, and, and what, are you, what are your plans? What are your options? I'm, gonna, can I, I'm not going to ask you what your plans are. Well, I, you, know, you can tell me what you wish. But uh, what are your options? Well, at this point, I don't think there's anything that the families can now do to go try and get anything added or changed. Um, it's, just, it's just another one of these, everybody's yelling trauma-informed, and trauma-informed only seems to apply to police officers and and those that are, are guilty of anything and the families trauma informed means we're going to kick you in the stomach one more time. Clearly, I hear you saying that the families have not been treated respectfully and by extension, the memories of the victims, neither. No, um, to, to go and protect everybody when, when you're trying to find facts and all the people that are, have got the facts are the ones that, they're protecting they're not letting them speak or they're letting them speak behind closed doors without anybody around um lisa banfield when she testified i don't even consider it testifying because she came in with conditions that 
she wasn't allowed to be cross-examined and she was protected um, from everybody. We even had, for the first time that I've seen, the police department actually come in with their detector dogs and four officers to search uh, the venue uh, before the uh, before the day she testified, and I've never seen them bring in dogs or anything like that before. So that was a, a real new, surprising thing to see. Yeah, when you see what's going on internally with the the RCMP, with the uh, Chief Inspector uh, Leather talking about, you know, being told not to uh, not to share publicly or with the commission. Um, the uh, the contents of a phone call with the RCMP commissioner, and then also um, Inspector Darren Campbell's notes being withheld by the Justice Bar Department for months, and there had to be several subpoenas to get them released. What does that all speak to to you? That just to me, it just says they're they're not they're they're looking at mate, uh, hitting the ticky boxes and saying, we've covered this, we've covered this, so that at the end of the day, when, when this finally wraps up, they can sit down and say, well, we, we, did our, we did our best, we did our part, here's our recommendations, and uh, a lot of people have made some pretty, pretty good money sitting just watching everybody else uh, hurt. They didn't want an inquiry. I mean, we've talked about this before. They didn't want an inquiry at the beginning. The initial objective, or the, their, their initial objective, was to have three individuals assess what happened, write a report, and carry on. And then and now they they were forced into the inquiry. Even the prime minister said at the early part, "Well, I'm not going to say there's going to be an inquiry," but now they've been forced into it. And uh, is it your sense they're just going to try to do what they did at the, the, the very beginning, just write a report, regardless of how the families feel? That's what I'm seeing. Is it just like they're uh, they're just going through the motions to say that they're doing it? Um, like I I have a lawyer that if I have questions to ask, I go through my lawyer. But then it's still up to the commission counsel and stuff whether those questions are pertinent to ask or not. It, you know, if you're if you're just going to block the questions that are out there, what's the point in even asking questions? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.